0: If you wanna go fast, go alone. But if you wanna go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by The Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once a month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received, is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the Impact Collaborative. Again, that's info at real-leaders.com. Enjoy the show. One, five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of The Real Ears Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. And today, folks, got a very special guest on for you today. Have you ever been walking in a city and you smell that rotten egg smell? I know I have. We've got a a CEO of a company today that's here to solve that problem in a sustainable, efficient, cost-effective way. Please welcome the CEO of Moliere, Nick Diner. Nick, thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks, John. Pleasure to be here.
0: Of course, of course. So, nano bubble technology. Tell us a little bit about that and the solution that Moliere has come up with to take away that rotten egg smell as well as help with uh,
1: clean water. Yeah, thanks. You know, so uh, I'll start with nanobubbles. Uh, so this is an emerging sort of new category of science or class of science. Uh, and, and Moliere is certainly fortunate to become one of the leaders in this space. Um, when we're talking about nanobubbles, we are talking about bubbles. These are bubbles, though, that are down at about 100 nanometers in size. That's uh, more than 2,000 times smaller than a grain of salt. And the way to think about a bubble at that scale, which is obviously extremely hard to conceptualize. It's an unfortunate analogy, but it's has very timely. It's about the size of a virus, which we all all now know is very hard to imagine and picture. Um, At that scale, the bubble doesn't rise to the surface and pop, which is how all of the bubbles that we know of behave. Because every time we open a soda, we see all of these bubbles. And the bubbles are slowly rising until they all reach the surface, disappear to the atmosphere, and now you have a flat soda. It's because all the gas is gone, Um, or all the excess gas is gone. It's probably correctly to say it. Well, in our case, these bubbles are so small that they actually don't have the buoyancy to come to the surface. So they're hanging out in a body of water, waiting to participate in some sort of physical, chemical, or biological reaction. And at that scale, these bubbles start start to do a lot of really interesting things. Now, you were referencing when we started about walking in a in a city and you've got that sort of rotten egg foul smelling odor and usually on a warm day it's usually the stagnant water well, what's happened in that body of water is it's gone anaerobic so you have uh, what they call these uh, sulfate reducing bacteria that like anaerobic anaerobic meaning no oxygen in the water um, opposite of aerobic uh, 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 bacteria start to form hydrogen sulfide and that hydrogen sulfide is that rotten egg smell that everyone dislikes when they're walking in that scenario described. The way you get rid of that is you convert that water back to an aerobic condition, meaning you put oxygen in that water through air or pure oxygen, and you try to eliminate that smell, that hydrogen sulfide compound smell, which is through a, form, a process known as oxidation. But what's interesting about Moliere's technology is we don't, not only do we put oxygen back into water very efficiently, we dissolve it incredibly efficiently, so it becomes more cost-effective to use our technology to do that, but the nanobubble itself, when it ruptures, when it breaks, releases so much energy that it forms something known as an oxidant, like bleach, chlorine, um, uh, peroxide, um, many other types of oxidants that are out there that are commonly used These sort of harmful chemicals. We do it naturally, just through an air bubble that pops, and all of a sudden, it eliminates that hydrogen sulfide smell, and we were very, uh, um, uh, fortunate that we were able to demonstrate the value of that technology in a very large project. Actually, that happened right in our backyard here in LA County, where a body of water had uh, very rapidly gone to an anaerobic condition, formed a very high concentration of hydrogen sulfide, that rotten egg mill. And uh, LA County, to their credit, was looking for a sort of a, a more responsible, sustainable solution to address that. And we were lucky to be called in to do it and Many people in Moliere work 24-7 to mobilize an enormous uh, uh, amount of nanobubble treatment technology and capacity. We did exactly that. We dealt with that rotten egg smell that often comes in the scenario you described.
0: It's always great to interview, you know, social enterprises, you know, that have found a need for something like this and are solving it in in a sustainable way. What is the business case for something like that? Who are the customers that you serve and, and why is this um, a, a competitive model versus
1: someone else? Yeah, so so we talked a little about hydrogen sulfide in your example of walking you know, on a, on a warm day in the city and you get that smell. That's actually only one piece of what Moliere does and how we deploy nanobubble technology. So um, what we do, let me just start there. What we do is we manufacture, we call it, industrial scale nanobubble systems. These are various systems utilizing our patent technology that forms these 100 nanometer size bubbles while dissolving gas, typically air oxygen to water, incredibly efficient. And then the question is, well, what do you do with that once you have that? So um, we, at a very high level, because we work in a lot of industries, are helping a wide range of industries, either getting more out of the water they use to produce their products, could be farmers with irrigation water, salmon producers growing uh, fish, could even be mining companies looking to extract copper and gold and what. Or we're helping those same industries and others discharge and treat that water more responsibly. Hmm. And when I say more responsibly, uh, so a lot of times people use the word more sustainable. In in that case, what we're really trying to do is help them uh, reduce their dependence on chemicals, um, as well as try to get more out of their treatment plant by increasing their treatment capacity. And so uh, I was telling someone recently, a few weeks ago, I was up in, in British Columbia with my family, and I have a nine and a half year old son who uh, loves geology. And so I took him to an, uh, an old closed copper mine that used to be a very large uh, uh, mine called Britannia Mines uh, right outside of Vancouver. And you take a tour, and the video is really well done. It educates both children, but adults. And in it, uh, uh, the host says, If you think about it, virtually everything we touch started out as either being grown or mined. Mining is both, you know, oil and gas as well as, you know, metals. And obviously growing is not just produce. It's also, you know, uh, fish and and whatnot. And nanobubbles play a role in all of that. And to give a few more stats around it, about 90% of all the water that's used goes to either agriculture or industry. Only about 10%, it's estimated, is going really to the municipal side of things. And so we play a role in helping uh, almost 100%, in some cases we also touch municipal, uh, of that water being used more uh, efficiently and being treated more responsibly. And that, at the end of the day, is a big area where nanomodal technology plays a really important role in the future, because that's a big challenge. How do we continue to ensure that we can produce what is needed for a growing population, given what's happening in the world of climate change? with a finite amount of water available to enable them. And that's really what I think every single employee who comes to Molier every day is focused on.
0: It makes sense, you know, if you're gonna deploy nano bubbles, it would increase the yields versus these other chemicals. Uh, what are some of the growth challenges that you've run into um, during this, I guess, new product adoption?
1: Operation? Yeah, well, the, the first is, is sort of the, uh, goes back to the very first question you asked me, which is what are is. Right? So when you're, when you're going out there to try to bring a new technology to market, most of the time, that new technology is an improved upon version of something people already understand, right? So I've got a faster computer, mm. a uh, better phone, just looking around. So we go to a customer, we say, we have nanobombs. And nine out of 10 times, or 99 out of 100 times, is probably more appropriate. Their first question is what a nanobombs. That's a tough place to start in your first commercial conversation with a potential customer. Normally, you're trying to explain who your company is and why it's better than the other guy's company who's selling a similar product. So we start with a a steep curve in in education, right? How do we take what has been researched only for the last 20 or 30 years, which is not a long time when it comes to technology in terms of usually starting at the research phase in the academic community for for years and years and then a few little examples that are going on in the field. We took something that had been researched only you know, 20 or 30 years, primarily out of Asia, and tried to very rapidly commercialize that. It. And it's obviously a very big challenge. It's been a lot of hard work on behalf of the team here. Mm. But, but that's really it, right? To explain to somebody first what it is that's interesting about the technology, then you have to explain to them what's great about your company. Um, it's a two-step challenge that um, I think we often overlook how difficult that is and how hard everybody here is working towards, uh, towards overcoming that. And, and what
0: has worked for you from a storytelling perspective? Are you drawing analogies, metaphors? Uh, what specifically in this articulation, this, these interpersonal skills have you
1: found to be helpful? Yeah, look, at the end of the day, it, it's it's no different from how you deal with people internally as you do with externally, right? It starts with empathy, right? You got to put yourself in the shoes of that customer. and Understand what are the pain points they have? If they don't have any pain points, move on, right? I and mean, there's a lot of challenges out there that need to be solved. Um, and, and so it's really trying to understand, and this is what i team does as well. It's really trying to understand what are the needs that the customer is experiencing and how can we help? And if we can't help, there's plenty of problems and challenges out there. Like I just said, move on to the next one, don't waste your time. And so what, what I think is a bit of sort of tailwind for our company is the pain points that we are trying to help our customers overcome are very real and they're very big. So, uh, you know, we see it in. Give you some small examples, like sort of lake management. The idea of treating lakes and ponds, community ponds, golf course ponds, drinking water reservoirs. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways you can treat a pond. A lot of effective ways. You can pour algicides in there, copper, pesticides, and herbicides. And, and lake management companies do that. And they do that responsibly, to their credit. But there's growing uh, movement from their customers not to see that anymore right? That's a real pain that end users don't want to see those types of chemicals going into their body of water that's in their backyard or in their golf course or in their, in their reservoir, um, or even in a stormwater channel in LA County. And so um, you know, that's where our technology can help. And I think really explaining how our technology helps in that respect makes it um, a little bit easier every time. Similarly in irrigation water, right? I mean, at the end of the day, when you're growing something, whether it's a tomato, a leafy green, Cucumber, pepper, as you can imagine, it's a multivariate equation. It's a lot of variables that are influencing the uh, outcome during a given crop cycle. Um, A lot of times it could be not only just water shortage, which is always a concern, especially if you're a farmer in Central Valley, but it's, it's heat stress. As temperatures rise, that heat stress affects the ability for farmers to grow crops. As temperatures rise, water quality always goes down because the amount of water, oxygen water can hold goes down. That's why your soda tastes more flat when it's warm than when it's cold, because the water can't, that soda can't hold as much CO2. Same thing, it can't hold as much water. So when water starts to lose oxygen, because temperatures rise, the amount of oxygen it holds goes down, uh, diseases form. So when irrigation water has disease in it, the plant spends most of its time fighting a disease. It doesn't spend its time converting nutrients and growing. So. What our technology is enabling farmers to do, for example, is not only to bring more oxygen to the root zone, which helps the the roots develop, but it also reduces the amount of disease in that water. It helps provide more robust roots so it can withstand heat stress. It also ends up converting nutrients more efficiently because the root mass is larger. And in cases, you also start to reduce less water because you're increasing your yield. So it's, it's not hard to start to connect the value proposition that we've been able to work with universities to prove out or rely on third-party research that already existed from universities combined with early installations we did in these different applications to start making people understand, hey, there's real there's real value in solving a very real problem that I experience using nanobubble technology.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. And Nick, what drew you to the organization? Because you're a hired gun, right? You, you were working for other organizations, building them, growing them. What drew you to Moliere? What gave you the confidence that you could run this organization?
1: I'm not sure if I have the confidence, but we'll come back, <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, but uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I've, I got into the water business back in about 2006, 2007 with General Electric. They were moving me around from business to business. I was very lucky to be in one of their, their leadership programs, so I had that experience. They assigned me to the water business. Um, didn't really think much of it at the time, and, and loved GE, and still love GE, learned an immense amount there. Um, but while I was at their water business, which is called GE Water, uh, fell in love with the industry. And um, the water industry provides sort of two very, I think, uh, somewhat unique opportunities. I don't know many other industries that allow for this. The first is that you're focused on, so- on, on solving a very big problem. You're involved in a very big problem, which is making sure that there's always gonna be enough access to water, not just clean water for drinking water, which is the most paramount. Um, but all the other uses of water, which as I said before, is enormous, right? Every industry is touching water in one layer. And secondly, water is very local. So you're not gonna sit in the building, you know, focused on trying to, you know, deliver product to thousands, thousands of customers around the world. You have to get out there and you gotta be, you gotta sit with them, you gotta be face to face with them, you gotta understand how they're using water, what their needs are, what their problems are, and see how you can solve them. So, so you get to live a very interesting life, in my opinion. And then that's what drew me to the industry 2010 i sort of had that desire to go try to be part of a startup and i had a unique opportunity that moved my wife and i out to los angeles um, i was living in, on the east coast at the time in and out of new york city and uh it was a reverse osmosis membrane com- uh technology i was spun out of ucla venture backed um focused on trying to improve the economics of desalination and in desalination very specifically seawater uh, uh desalination through reverse osmosis for drinking water and for select other industries mm-hmm. primarily drinking water mm-hmm. um the founder was looking for, for somebody to lead the commercial organization so that we build out a business plan over the first year in terms of how we bring the product to market and then eventually lead the the commercial organization and i was very lucky to have that experience um, for four years and then two more after lg the the, the, Cor- the korean giants acquired the company. Um, I was focused on expanding the reverse osmosis membrane business for for nano H2O and and LG water that eventually acquired nano H2O. Um, Not to to sound arrogant, but I was uh, fortunate enough to travel and and do business in 92 countries, which was still an incredible thing. And I I look back at uh, as probably the fondest memory I've I've had in in any six-year period, uh, certainly professionally. when my time with LG was coming to an end, I met the co-founders of Moliere, our CTO, Bruce Shulton, and our chief commercial officer, Warren Russell. And they were looking to raise some, some seed money to get started to basically commercialize this technology that Bruce had developed, which was forming these uh, nano-sized bubbles in flowing, flowing water. flowing liquid, and, and the original thought was this would be applied to wastewater treatment. Um, because in wastewater, there's a lot of aeration. The idea of keeping wastewater aerobic so you can let the biology do its work, break down organics, and have a wastewater quality that you can just then discharge uh, safely to the, the environment. Um, my wife and I, and a few others, including the former, my former boss, the co founder of the previous company I was, was with, who's involved in Molière today, we invested in Bruce and Warren, um, and I joined them to help grow the business. And that's now just over five years ago. And uh, since then, we've been lucky to be growing ever since.
0: And what are some of the, the early leadership lessons that you can you know, share with our audience that um, are tangible takeaways for, for learning how to grow an organization with you know, an educational aspect to it, not a large brand name like LG? Um, what are some takeaways that you can you know, deploy to the audience listening to this today?
1: yeah i think especially if you're in the very early stages of a startup um i sort of think of like three things and i probably still think of them today even though we're we're, we've grown beyond that the first is sort of that sort of you know optimism that almost becomes singular that optimism can never waver and there are probably more days where you're having challenges than you're having successes but at the end of the day those days where you are having successes are greater in value than the days you're having challenges. Um, I don't think anybody has it differently than that when you're trying to build something from scratch. It's really hard for obvious reasons. Um, secondly is perspective. And that perspective, you know, a lot of people use the word empathy. I think they go hand in hand. Perspective, though, goes beyond just people. Um, it's really sort of understanding where you are at any given time and what sort of what is that next decision going um, to mean. And at least a third, which is risk. Um, I see a lot, I've been lucky to be involved or have perspective a lot of startups are trying to get started in the water industry and some of them just have extraordinary technology but there's a lot of times i see like a fear to deploy it and and, and there's always a lot, a lot of nuance, lots of reasons for that for that fear but at the end of the day i kind of come back to which is like you know if you believe in it put it out there because it's not going to work just you'll get to the answer faster you won't waste all your time trying right. to figure it out so you, you got to sort of figure out how to manage risk appropriately now, you can never let a customer down. So if something goes wrong, you got to make it up to them, which we do well. And we always think about how would we make it up? To it. Could we replace the product quickly? Um, you know, can we make some changes on the fly if this is going to go wrong? So we weigh all the risks, but you got to take this, right? So I think about optimism, perspective, and risk as sort of being the critical factors. And then the hardest part is as you grow, how do you really think of, you can never lose optimism, but how do you think about perspective? The perspective evolves. And how do you think about risk? That risk evolves. Um, But those are sort of those things I I certainly remember early on, uh, you know,
0: driving sort of our daily decision.
1: making.
0: I love it. I love it. And from a people's perspective, what's your, and obviously leadership is separate from management. What's your management style with your organization? How are you approaching your people? How are you defining clear goals? How are you working
1: with your steering committee? How are you drinking? We're growing. As we're growing, it's getting harder. Um, so uh, I'll tell you, there's something I, I, I come back to a lot, which is I keep putting things in, in sort of individual words, um, you know, before talking about risk, perspective, and optimism. I do talk a lot. I think, about, think to myself every day, are we creating visibility? Are we communicating effectively? And are we driving accountability? And I'll start with the third one. Accountability isn't who's to blame that word is often so misused as who's accountable, as if who am I going to accuse for screwing something up? That's not what I mean by accountability. That's why I always clarify what I mean. Accountability is making sure that um, something has an owner and that owner feels empowered, right? When you clearly empower somebody, um, regardless of their level in the organization, I tend to believe that the majority of time they flourish they outperform what they expected or you expected that person to achieve. And that's because they feel ownership, right? They feel ownership and hopefully they're, they're happy with the assignment. So they feel invested in wanting to succeed in, in delivering that. So now you've got somebody who feels ownership for themselves and empowered for themselves, but also feels like responsible to want to deliver towards something. And so that clear accountability is really important. On the on the visibility and accountability, that's the hardest, I'm sorry, visibility and communication, that's the hardest part, right? So. You know, uh, you hear a lot of times people talk about he's an effective communicator. And it's great if he or she is an effective communicator, but the flip side is if somebody doesn't communicate at all. So making sure that people are always communicating, that over communicating cliche expression is incredibly important when you're growing and adding people at, at a very fast rate, which we've been fortunate, fortunate to be able to do. Um, and then visibility is, are we making people's work visible? How do you drive transparency? I don't mean transparency from a He's very transparent. She's very transparent. That often uh, uh, associates that with honesty or holding something back. I'm talking about like really to providing visibility in people's results. We we have you know one of the largest blueberry farmers in the world getting a 25 percent yield in Chile improvement in Chile, and half our team never knew about that because we forgot to share those results with the rest of our team. And so it sounds very trivial like that's not really a you know big deal. It's just a customer. Right. Well, no, actually, that could have driven a lot more business and made people's jobs a lot easier when they're out there in California or southern Spain trying to sell the same solution to the same type of uh, customer. Um, same thing applies with you know, the challenges that the world is experiencing supply chains. How do you make sure that people know where things stand at any given time? That's really hard and it requires uh, an enormous amount of effort to do right, uh, to get right. But uh, that visibility, accountability, communication, that's that's what I think about all the time in terms of that sort of management style and responsibility of the, the person at the top. Because if the person at the top not doing it, nobody else. Is.
0: Right. I love those three key components. Now, um, out of your core processes, as you've been continuing to grow, what one has or what one have you had to change or adapt the most?
1: I, I don't know if the processes as much as it's... um as you're growing quickly and you bring more people on board, people's jobs have to adapt. And that's really hard for people, right? It's hard for me as well. I've noticed I had to do it for myself, like go of things I was doing in the past, like going of this customer that I was the one working on because we didn't have somebody else to cover that. Um, narrowing your job responsibility, perception, at least your perception is you're narrowing your job responsibility in the organization because we've added more people or sometimes I just create a whole new function. So you know what, this whole area of the business is not getting the attention it needs, we're creating a whole new function, we're going to hire all new people. And it's disruptive, and I know it's disruptive, and it requires a lot of patience with people to be able to have the opportunity to express their frustration or concerns, perhaps even confusion, looking for clarity. And most of the time, they're just looking more for, for um, uh, uh, sort of comfort, confidence that everything's OK. Mm. Um, that's the part that is is really hard. because. You know, every time you know you're going to make an org change or you're going to add a few people very quickly to the to the organization, it's going to disrupt and affect a lot of people. But if you don't do it, we're also not going to move at the pace we want to move, uh, going after the opportunities we want to go after, solving the problems we want to go solve um, successfully. And uh, and I notice myself not being very good at that, so yeah. something I work on for myself as well.
0: And I love your authenticity. Uh, you, you you talked about. Um, you know, being, I guess, establishing a lot of transparency, um, being yourself on these phone calls, and then trying to encourage people and and telling them how it is, uh, encouraging them to take ownership. How does authenticity play a role within your culture? Uh, What's your perspective on, um, I guess, just humanizing uh,
1: your daily interactions? So, So you actually ask a question at the very beginning or you're going to ask a question about what does it mean to be a real leader? Which you always ask. Right. I think that goes hand in hand, right? I think authenticity is what it means to be real, and so um, it goes beyond just being able to inspire people while still being honest, which is not easy. Right? You see, um, you know what? What does what does a cult leader do? I don't really know too much about cults, but you know, you always think about cult leader when you see documentaries on them. They're phenomenal at insp- inspiring people, but through dishonest messages, right? So it's easy to inspire through dishonesty. I actually don't think that's very difficult. Inspiring through honesty, that, that's where authenticity comes in. Having that, that word I've used a few times, that, that empathy, it's, it's hard to be empathetic and have people believe you're being empathetic if you're not being authentic. Um, and I recently told somebody in our organization, um, uh, young guy, very bright, I said, you, ha- you have a talent, you have a gift that you can talk to anybody in this company at any level. And you can talk to any one of our customers or strategic partners at any level the same way. And I don't see a lot of people doing that that I come across. And That's a degree of authenticity that people really value. Mm-hmm. And people see right through it when they're not. Um, I think it's really hard um, to, to become sort of a, a really good leader if you're not authentic. And I think that goes hand in hand. Uh, well, thanks for sharing, Nick. And, and-
0: Let's just talk, you know, CEOs, uh, very, I wouldn't say isolated. It's a very unique position. Not that many people can relate to the lifestyle, the responsibilities, the weight that CEOs carry. What are some of the things that are keeping you up at night?
1: It's on the day. <laughs> I've had that, uh, and this is a conversation I have my wife all the time, unfairly too, I should say. It's the burden of. Right. My stress falls on her, and she has a more demanding job than me, and is also the one working from home. And during COVID, I didn't. And we have two small children, so uh, <laughs> she could probably answer that question sure. better than I can. But um, uh, so, um, you know, early on in the company, and at different phases around the company, I would be thinking only about cash flow and payroll. How many more payroll cycles do we have if we don't? either get this payment in from this customer or raise the money. Now, luckily, we, we've gone beyond that for now, and hopefully never return to that, not, <laughs> knock on wood. Um, I, I think a lot about how people are, are, are feeling in the organization. So as we grow and we add people, as I mentioned earlier, the disruption that causes as our mission evolves and expands in a really exciting way. Um, as we think about all challenges that come with growth, are people still clear on what we're trying to accomplish? Are, am I creating confusion? Um, are people uh, you know, still enthusiastic, inspired, invested? in? And I think they are, but you never know, right? can't read minds. Um, those are the things I think a lot about. And then, of course, unfortunately or unfortunately, I, uh, I think every day about where we are on, on our numbers, right? What's our order book look like? What does our pipeline look like? Are we going after the opportunities that our companies trying to, uh, trying to uh, align ourselves to go after? Is anybody sort of deviating from it? If so, is there a good reason or do we have to help that person? Are we making sure we're setting everybody up to be successful? Hmm.
0: And how open are you with the numbers within your organization?
1: Pretty open. Um, certainly on on revenue and orders uh where we are to plan um you know we do keep certain aspects around costs confidential because i think that can influence decision making right so like at the end of the day most of our sales team is not really driven by uh knowing sort of what our costs are and how much they can negotiate on price with a customer we've got we've got pretty good controls around that but as we grow it becomes harder so so we're mindful of things like costs and certainly mindful of things like cash and cash flow. But, uh, but we're more transparent than most companies I've, I've worked for in the past. And I think it's important because um, as much as we are mission-driven, and we truly believe we are trying to build a leading climate technology company, solving some of the most important challenges that the world faces already and will continue to face. But I also think it's important to tie it to, to numbers that matter too. Because at the end of the day, everybody here knows we're trying to build a profitable business and, and that requires you know, uh, focus on budgets and focus on achieving our financial uh, objectives as well. And everybody can figure that out once they, under, they don't. It doesn't take much to understand what these numbers mean. So, giving them an under, giving them a target, giving them a goal that makes people even more focused. I think it's a good thing.
0: How important is alignment to you? Uh, communication was one of those key pillars that you mentioned. Trans- transparency, everything that you've just spoken about. Um, how important is aligning that steering committee to create? same messaging, as well as uh, just out of curiosity, what have been some productive communication tools that your, your team has been using?
1: Yeah, so, so I, I'll tell you, I, I'm learning from others as we go, which is okay. Sometimes I wish I was the one who thought of it. but That's just ego driving, uh, driving solution. Um, I, I'll give you some examples. So uh, we used to do a monthly management meeting. We do it a weekly management we used to do a weekly total staff total company call just to make sure everyone got what they needed people were saying that was just too much and dominated by too few people so i converted that to a monthly town hall for the whole company so we try to create as much visibility and in that town hall we it's 30 minutes of here's the latest that's going on in moliere that i think is interesting to know about others present not just me and there's 30 minutes of q a ask any question you want um but you know we also we also do like a weekly report which, you know, when I first heard of a weekly report, my LG experience for two and a half years at LG went was saying, oh, it's just bureaucracy, right? That's just people having to write reports. So the leadership, you know, back at headquarters on the other side of the world uh, knows what's going on. It's, it's for leadership's benefit. And the reality is what I found with that report, um, which is a weekly report, everybody just gives some bullets, you know, what they learned this week, what are they working on, what's, what's important for the organization to you know, what critical questions do you have. It actually never became up, right? Rarely ever read something reported, not know, about So Pretty, I'm privy to sort of the, 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 the luxury of the seat that I see them to, to see everything that people are willing to make visible, right? So, right? so, but others don't. And so that report became really valuable for everybody else. People really respond to what's in that report and how I can learn from that person. Oh, I didn't know this product was delayed, or I didn't know we had this issue, or this targeted chip date just moved. And, and it, it really makes communication easier. The responsibility, though, is to make sure that everybody's contributing. And at the end of the day, you can't force that, but you try to make them understand that it's really valuable to contribute to it for others, just like it's valuable for those others to contribute for you. And it's been working well.
0: I love to hear that. And uh, have you found that your employees, because of you know this major water crisis issue that we're facing today, I mean, a lot of folks, just your general public don't even realize how bad it is Do your employees, I guess, are they more galvanized because of this? Do they find it more empowering in the work, more meaning in the jobs? And have you found that, like, any correlation in terms of productivity and results?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, we haven't done enough to survey our team to recognize how much is that a motivator. But there is a question that I ask uh, every commercial person in here. About a third of our company are are people in commercial seats. Um, I ask them, Why do you like? being in sales or in a commercial world. And a lot of times you'll hear people say in an interview, you know, I'm commission driven. I love the, I love getting the big commission. I love, you know, closing that big deal. Um, uh, the answer I'm always looking for is I love solving a customer's problem. Um, I've never found that uh, salesperson that, you know, I've never found a salesperson that doesn't answer that question that way to be very good at selling. I think you have to be really invested in solving problems for your customer base to, to be a long-term effective salesperson. Um, and I think that kind of speaks also to that question you're asking about, you know, the higher level around water and the galvanized by the water challenge. It kind of goes hand in hand because the problems we're trying to solve are tied to them. So you have to be vested in wanting to solve that bigger picture problem to also be able to solve the individual customer problem. So I, I, I do believe at the end of the day, I'm guessing that the vast majority, if not all of our employees, care about exactly what you just said. Which is really trying to solve these challenges that are out there uh, that aren't going away um, with you know a new technology that really does it cost effective. Nick, at this
0: point in the conversation, I want to kind of get to the what, what, what does nano bubble technology look like deployed yeah. on a large scale agricultural blueberry farm? Like, walk us through what that looks like and uh, some of the environmental. Um, outcomes because
1: of it. Yeah, so, so in the very simplest terms, the nano bubble generator looks like a pipe because what we manufacture in the core technology where the patent portfolio uh, exists is essentially a um, uh, cylindrical device that will go into a pipe structure where we are diffusing gas your proprietary material into flowing water. Now the water can be any liquid, the gas can be any gas, but nine out of 10 times it's air or oxygen going into water or some sort of process water, like wastewater. And inside there, not only do we have that proprietary material, we also have certain geometries, and we actually apply some certain fields around magnetic and electric fields to uh, form and manipulate these very tiny balls. Now, the majority of the time, our customers can't use that by itself, So they actually require us to provide them a system. And that system will have a pump, uh, that will have some sort of gas compression system, air compressor an oxygen concentrator or other. And then they also like controls, right? They wanna be able to control as much of it as possible with as little amount of work as possible. So you end up with these different sort of packages. We use the term skid mounted or frames or boxes that have all of these important components in that frame skid or box that our customer can deploy. And so if you went out in the field and you saw a Moliere unit, whether it's going by a koi pond at a hotel in Hawaii, which is a customer, customer, to a lake at a uh, golf course, to a greenhouse, to a vertical farm, to an outdoor farm, um, to a wastewater treatment plant, you're picturing these boxes getting larger and larger because the amount of liquid or water we're treating gets bigger and bigger. um, And therefore the gas system gets larger and larger, but it's really two pipes, one going in to the pump, one coming out of our unit that is recirculating that liquid or water from the pond, lake, tank, or whatever body of water you're treating through our technology and back in. And what we're doing is we're adding more and more nanobubbles to a given volume of liquid. And to put it in perspective, we are putting hundreds and hundreds of millions, close to a billion nanobubbles per milliliter of water, which sounds like a staggering number. And it puts in perspective how small 100 nanometers are. That means billions can fit in a milliliter, and you wouldn't notice. You wouldn't see it. You wouldn't see any increase in volume. Um, that's how small a nano nanopart- bubble or a nanoparticle is.
0: I, I love it. And, and you know the uh, the quote goes: you know, the world's biggest problems are the world's biggest business opportunities. But in in this scenario, you know you're thinking small. Um, you're thinking small on a nano level. Where did this idea come from? Uh, tell me a little bit about the founders.
1: Yeah, it's actually a pretty neat story. So um, Warren, who's our chief commercial officer, co-founder, he was selling um, uh, bacteria, microbiology, to wastewater treatment plants all around the world. And the way the majority of wastewater treatment is still treated globally is that wastewater comes into a pond or lagoon or a treatment plant, and um, you want to give that wastewater bugs or bacteria to start consuming and breaking down the organics and other contaminants that are in that wastewater until it reaches a certain level that you can then discharge that wastewater back into the environment safely. You can irrigate it, you can put it in the river, um, uh, canal, ocean, et cetera. And that bugs need a certain amount of time to do their job. And they need oxygen because they're aerobic in nature. So you put air into that wastewater. And aeration consumes about 2% of the world's energy. It's actually an incredibly energy intensive process. And it's widely used because there's wastewater everywhere. and The way aeration works is you blow air into water through a system and it forms a bubble. That bubble starts to rise because they're not manable. And as it's rising, you're trying to dissolve that air, the oxygen in the air, until the bubble reaches the surface and pops. The smaller the bubble, the slower it rises, the deeper you inject it, the more distance it's going to travel before it reaches the atmosphere. So Warren had a project in Abu Dhabi, Temporary Wastewater Treatment plant, very shallow water and very high temperature. And uh, because it was high temperature, the amount of oxygen it holds goes down. It's known as Henry's Law in the world of physics. And because it's shallow, the aeration system and the bubbles that it forms don't have a lot of time to dissolve the air and puts water. So he had a project. He wasn't getting the oxygen levels in the wastewater that he needed for his bugs to work. He had in the past worked with Bruce, who had his own small business in Southern California, building custom water and wastewater treatment systems on a uh, select basis for industrial clients here in Southern California. And at times he would build equipment for for Warren for certain purposes. And Warren asked Bruce, is there a way we can find uh, a technology that can give me really small bubbles to extend the amount of time that I can keep the oxygen levels higher in this temporary wastewater work treatment. And through their work, uh, Bruce started to hone in on something that could form these really small bubbles. Sure enough, they were producing bubbles that were in the nanoscale and Bruce filed some patents around it. And when they deployed the technology at this plant, they saw two things happen that caught their attention. One, the oxygen levels rose very, very high, very, very fast. And secondly, when the system wasn't running, those oxygen levels lingered for a very long period, mm. suggesting that there was something some bubbles were trapped in that body. you were behaving differently. The treatment process was behaving differently. And then they tried a few more projects, uh, very small scale. They did something like $30,000 in revenue before we met them. Um, there was enough there that they wanted to try to build something, uh, build a company around this, this thing that they had developed. Um, and that was sort of the backstory. And, and what I liked about it when I met them was uh, uh, the fact that the technology was basically ready to go. Now, we've made enormous improvements since then, but it was ready to go. And two, they had a success story. And when you are putting your own money to work, uh, it's nice to know those two, those two hurdles have already been passed versus something that's still in the conceptual stage of the R&D lab on a bench, and you have no idea about the commercial lab. Oh, no
0: and so doubt. that was one of the
1: things I found really compelling about that backstory as well.
0: It's really inspiring. And you know, for someone that lives in Southern California, you know, it's just such a big issue. And you, know, you hear about sewage, whether it's coming from Tijuana or, you know, just here locally, just, you know, I, I surf. So, I, you know, going after it rains, so you can't go out for another 72 hours, right? the sewage is so bad. Um, so you know, just wishing you all the best of luck um, with, with those micro efforts um, that can, can really turn to a larger scale. Um, Nick, let's bring this home. We've had a really riveting discussion today. We've talked a lot about uh, the environmental mm-hmm. reasons uh, for this, this product. Uh, we've talked about building relationships, leadership uh, skills and the, the growing pains that you've overcome. And then lastly, what the actual product is, what it looks like on a large scale. Uh, so let's bring this home to you, Nick Diner. What is your definition of a real
1: leader? Yeah, I, you know, it goes back to sort of that, that comment about authenticity early on. You know, I do think there's a responsibility, especially when you're building uh, an early stage company um, that you have to inspire, but you got to inspire through honesty. You got to be transparent. Um, you got to be candid. You got to be a good listener. All those things come back to being real, right? Being authentic. Um, and, and you know, I don't mean to use the same answer I used before, but sort of that word uh, resonated when you brought it up earlier on. I think to be a real leader, you got to be able to inspire people while still being brutally honest. And and that's sometimes not easy, right? Because easy way to inspire somebody is to give them a false narrative, a false sense of hope, uh, and that's entirely unfair. Uh, when you're, you know, employing people, you are, quote unquote, messing with their lives in a good way, hopefully, right? You're, you're asking them to, to sacrifice every other professional opportunity you have to come here and work here, and so you have a, a, a responsibility to those people. To be brutally honest, but you still gotta inspire, them. and, and that's to me what the, the real challenge at the end of the day is of being really careful.
0: For Nick Diner, I'm Kevin Edwards, asking you to go out there, avoid false narratives, and always, folks, keep it real. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders magazine, private member only events and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code podcast20 to receive 20% off a $100 a year subscription. Hit the link in the show notes, enter in coupon code podcast20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real.